Normally I carry so much less than, than that. But recently since I, started re- since I started reading the Bible from the, the first Bible I ever bought for myself, the, uh, the Jerusalem Bible, uh, it is like this tome. I knew that because it was so heavy, it really carried all the weight of God's knowledge in it. It must, because if it weighs this much, it has just got to be there. When I was growing up in the church um, uh, a long time ago, um, I, I, I fell in love with the biblical stories. And at the same time, I grew up in a household where the only... I know that this will date me. Back in my day, there were three television channels. They all came into the house over the airwaves. It was magical, magical. There was an antenna on top of our house that we always hoped lightning would not strike because the television would blow up. But uh, yes, we watched television that way. And Saturday was my dad's day off, and his favorite thing to watch was the Nature Channel. And so we watched every possible permutation of lions and tigers and bears and the universe and all of those kinds of things. It was long before CGI uh, could, you know, give us a bigger picture. So there, it it was fascinating to me. So I fell in love both with science and with the the stories that the Bible told me about who I was and who I was supposed to be. And then somewhere around high school, I had all of these friends who told me that science and the Bible just did not go together. That I had to just buy the Bible and set aside all of science that did not agree completely with whatever this book said. Now, I'm sure none of you have ever heard that kind of thing before. And uh, that's good. That's really good. If you never heard that, I just want you to know um, that I fell in love with science, and I think I fell in love with science for a reason, and that's because I was made in God's image. And God loves the universe, and science is the explanation of how the universe works. And so God is in love with science, too. Because science, well, God already knew all the science. I mean, God doesn't need all of those little test tubes and microscopes and electron microscopes to see all of that. But I began to realize that I needed to have a language and a way of looking at the universe that had meaning for me. And so I struggled. Uh, I'll just be quite frank with you. I struggled until about six years ago when I began well, almost seven years ago now, when I began a centering prayer practice. And so sitting in meditation every day, quietly before God, emptying myself, open to whatever God was going to do. Eventually, three or four or five years into the practice, it takes a while, I realized that there are just some things that I don't understand, and it's okay. You know, I hope it doesn't take you until you're like 55 years old to realize that there are some things in the universe you don't know, you don't understand, and it's okay if you don't know or understand them, that uh, God does and that's enough. And then I started reading some of the wonderful mystics who began to speak about just 
where God was in this whole process and how to embrace. And my favorite mystic of the 20th century, well, Thomas Merton and uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin are both tied in my book. I, Merton is eminently more readable. So if you have to have a choice and you're not a scientist, read Merton. Thomas Merton, wonderful. If you're a scientist and you want to have some deep mind-twisting, spend an hour on one paragraph kinds of reads, Teilhard, that's the one you should read. And you should read his first book, uh, The Human Phenomena. It's a fantastic, wonderful book. I'm about, I don't know, 30 pages in, and I've been reading it for six months. And that's, uh, and I do hold the book in my hand every day, and I might read a sentence or six. Uh, six is really on the outside. And usually there are six sentences I've already read, so I can maybe try to put all the thoughts together. But one of the things that he says about the universe, I think we will find to be true when we read the scripture from 1 John this morning. And that is that the very fabric of the universe is love. The very fabric of everything is love. Now, I'm not talking about that warm, fuzzy sentimentality that we have come to associate with what love looks like, you know, where I just really love this chair and I just need to hold this chair and embrace this chair because this is my warm, fuzzy. It's a special chair. I love the steeliness of its legs and the soft uh, cushioniness of its foam, probably made from something that, uh, you know, I, I don't want to know. Uh, and But uh, there it is. You know, we think it's a warm sentimentality, but perhaps it's something much more than that because the Bible more than once tells us that God is love. That God is love. And I used to think that love was a quantity that you could carry around and that if I loved you, like if I love James, and I do love James, I could hand a quantity of this stuff I carry around to him and then he would know I, I loved him. Same with Monica. I could just hand a quantity over and there, well, there we go. And, uh, but if it's the fabric of everything, then I'm not really giving you anything. It's just part of the flow of what connects us all together. So let me read to you now the passage that hopefully is still vaguely marked because I lost the bookmark when I came down the stairs with too much stuff in my hands. This is uh, the first letter uh, of John, and I'm beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, and I'm probably going to end with 4, but if I feel like it, I might read beyond, and I might end before then. We'll just see. Something which has existed since the beginning, that we have heard, that we have seen with our own eyes, that we have watched and touched with our hands the Word who is life. This is our subject. That life was made visible. We saw it, and we are giving our testimony, telling you of the eternal life which was with the Father and has been made visible to us. What we have seen and heard, we are telling you so that you too may be in union, to, uh, union with us, as we are in union with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing this to you to make our own joy complete. 
Some translations say, your joy complete. When I hear those words in those first four verses, something which has existed since the beginning that we have heard, that we have seen with our own eyes, and I think to myself, wait a second, have I really seen with my own eyes, at least the way I was raised, the place where God became part of matter was in one human being 2,000 years ago. But if I read the creation story in John, the Gospel of John chapter 1, and then in the first letter of John chapter 1, what I see is the whole unfolding of the universe is the outpouring and the manifestation, the making clear, the making matter of God. Love becomes real in us. You know, Richard Rohr likes to say that God loves things by becoming them. God loves things by becoming them. God loved you by becoming you. Not, you're not God. I'm not God. But we're not other than God. God is in us. As Paul said in his, uh, in his sermon to the Athenians, in God we live and move and have our being. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, I know I quote this often, but I found this fascinating. That we can know God by just looking at everything that is created because in seeing creation, we see a, a glimpse of the creator. A glimpse of what is. And so if this universe is made in the fabric of love, a love that connects us all and is embodied in everything. Not the same as everything because it's both in and other than everything we see. Then we catch a glimpse. We catch a glimpse everywhere we go of what God looks like. A piece of God. So it's like a huge puzzle. I'm not a puzzle person. You know, one of the things I got to see every morning early, when I was at ASP this year, one of the teams brought uh, puzzles. And they would set a puzzle out on the, because we had a common space, it was the uh, uh, cafeteria. And they would sit out a puzzle, and, you know, some of them would gather around the table, and they would spend the day putting all the pieces together when we were there, because most of the time you're not at the ASP Center, you're out working on a house, you know, constantly, you know, but you do sleep occasionally and uh, eat food and come back to the center and are spiritually edified by wise leaders. So, uh, but I watched them put together piece by piece by piece all these puzzle pieces. But have you ever had the I stopped doing this years ago when I did a 1,200-piece puzzle that I discovered near the very end was missing a piece. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I find no joy in incomplete puzzles. <laughs> no joy at all. I admit it to you right now. So if you would like to gr create great consternation in my life, give me a puzzle that you've opened the box of and taken just one piece out. 
And preferably, if you really want to make me frustrated, take the corner piece. Any corner, because those are the pieces I look for first. Those are my anchors. But if you think about a puzzle, and you think that each one of us bears a piece of the eternal puzzle of what God is like, then the opportunity is with each encounter with other human beings, with dogs, cats, birds, grass, trees, the sky, every encounter is a glimpse of the infinite, a glimpse. Because somehow what is infinite makes itself known in the finite, in what we can see with our eyes experience with our touch. So when I think about what's so universal about this Christ, it is the love that holds it all together in one instance. Richard likes to say, Richard Rohr likes to say, Christ is another word for everything. Because in the unfolding, in that original creation story as we understand it, Christ is in everything, shapes everything, is what's spoken. And it might be our code world. You can use any code word you want to. Christ is just a wonderful Greek word that means anointed one. So you can choose any word you want to. But if you're looking for a common language that we can all speak together, uh, as Christians, Christ is that word. Christ is that word, and for us becomes a placeholder, a way of understanding that the fabric of everything is Christ. And that fabric is love, because God is love. And that we can taste and see that God is good literally in every bite of every, every piece of food we eat. Every bite of your favorite fruit, you name it, I don't know what it is for you. The right season, I love peaches. Don't give me one of those winter peaches that they've imported from somewhere that's like an, a yellow rock. You know, uh, flavorless. Do not give me a winter tomato. You know, I am sure God's presence is in that winter tomato, but it is, sim sim it is simply just a round, mushy, flavorless space holder you know, uh, in your salad that offers redness. And I suppose I should be much more thankful for the flavorless rednesses in my salad during the wintertime. But after you've tasted a summer Virginia tomato, homegrown, it could have been from somewhere else. I only know Virginia tomatoes, so I'm not dissing you if you're from somewhere else. But in Virginia, get a fresh, homegrown Shenandoah Valley I have found are just fantastic. You know, a nice, full-bodied tomato. And you can just take it right off the plant, red, and bite into it. You can feel the juice run down your shirt and just feel the flavors cross your tongue. The, the wonderful blend of a slight sweetness with acidity, and it's like a dance. It's like you know Jesus had to have been born 2,000 years ago and that Christ is everywhere because tomatoes are amazing except in the wintertime. 
And the ones that are grown in hothouses are red, and they're fake. So, don't, you know, okay, but they're beautiful, and God made those two. And I'm sure I should never have said any of those things, except don't, don't let summer pass you by without good, homegrown, red Virginia tomato speaking to your very soul. To your soul. Now, we can laugh together. And I want you to laugh. But imagine with me what it would be like if we really breathed into every moment. If we really were present in every moment. Each face we looked into, every moment, was a glimpse at the universal Christ. A glimpse at what God looks like. Just a glimpse. Not a complete picture, but a glimpse. Wouldn't that make you want to stay in that look for just a moment longer? Because you might have missed something. How much do we miss when we perfunctorily say, good morning, how are you, without even looking at the person to whom we say it? How much do we miss when we shovel food in just to get past the meal into whatever's next? Have you ever savored your old-fashioned oats in the bowl. You know, you boil the water, you bring it to that rolling boil, and then you put your half cup of, of oats into your cup of boiling water. Maybe with a slight bit, maybe you like a pinch of salt. No salt for me. But, you know, a slight pinch of salt, you let it boil, you watch it as it begins to absorb the water and become beautiful little pieces. And then suddenly it's reconstituted as oats, can put it in your bowl. I like to eat it plain. I love to eat it plain. Now, I grew up eating it the way it should only be eaten. I'm sure it's the way Jesus liked his. Butter. A, a fair amount of butter. You know, I'm not talking a half pound, but maybe a quarter pound. Okay, maybe not that much. Dark brown sugar. Not light brown sugar. Dark brown sugar. A little bit of cinnamon and half and half cream. You want to talk about clogging your arteries. You could eat that three days in a row and you will be in the hospital for surgery. <laughs> but that's the way I grew up eating it. That's so wonderful. But to be serious, what would it be like if when you ate, you really ate the food? You really tasted the food. You chewed each bite, not in a rush to get somewhere else. Or let's imagine that you're sitting with someone and you're talking to them. How much more am I getting out of it if I'm talking to you without this in my face? A lot. <laughs> A lot. He threw it on the floor. Oh my gosh, his iPhone. What will happen now? Maybe I'll look at you more because it will stop vibrating in my back pocket. I thought it was on Do Not Disturb, but apparently it felt differently. Maybe it was just trying to remind me of connected to God as it vibrated right there. I don't know. Do you see how much we might miss in life because we don't recognize the universal crisis everywhere? That with this letter to John, we see that in the beginning, before everything, was the eternal Christ. And now, as the 
Christ exploded into everything that is. Now we can taste a bit of Christ everywhere. Yeah, I didn't get to walk with Jesus side by side 2,000 years ago. Containing somehow the universal Christ in one location. But I know that I'm sitting in a room right now, or I'm standing, most of you are sitting. I'm in a room with people who all contain a bit of the eternal Christ. Whether you claim it or not is not important. I can see it in you on my best days when I'm really present. I can see it in you. And so can you. It's not just me, it's you. You are hidden with Christ in God. You are hidden with Christ in God, Paul says in Colossians. You each contain just a bit and are contained within the eternal Christ. And that containment means we encounter each other through that sense of connection everywhere. Could the news be any better? That's good news. That's worth sharing. That's worth sharing everywhere we go. I mean, that's, that's what this greeting means to our Buddhist sisters and brothers. The God in me, or the me in me, sees the you in you. The God in me sees the God in you. The Christ in me sees the Christ in you. Imagine if that was your greeting everywhere you went, at least to people who would not be offended by you saying that. And I suspect there wouldn't be that many people who would be offended. They would be shocked. <laughs> really? <laughs> I was really not uh, putting off a lot of Christ this morning. I got up on the wrong side of the bed. <laughs> I still see it. <laughs> Can't hide it completely. Try as hard as you might. What would it be like if we really looked for it in each other? First of all, we'd stop. We'd savor moments when we saw people, even strangers. Because those are rich moments. We might trust each other a little bit more. The world might feel different. It might look different. As a way of closing things, uh, in my message, I wanted to share with you, I, I put it in the printed update. I encourage you to pick it up if you want to, um, one on your way out. But uh, at the end of the 1900s, 1800s, there we go, Teresa of Lisieux, St. Teresa, also known as the Little Flower, um, came to be known as, you know, she she was, had such a simple focus in her life, and it was love, love, love everywhere. Well, this is a quote from her. Love gave me the key to my vocation. I realized that if the church was a body made up of different members, she would not be without the greatest and most essential of them all. I realized that love includes all vocations. Includes all vacations too, but all vocations. That love is all things, and that because it is eternal, it embraces every time and place all at once. Swept 
by an ecstatic joy, I cried, at last I have found my vocation. My vocation is love. I have found my place. I will be love. So I shall be everything, and so my dreams will be fulfilled. What if you saw your vocation as a student, or a programmer, or a teacher, or a photographer, or a lawyer, or a sound engineer, or a military person, if you saw whatever you do, whoever you are, that your vocation, your first vocation, is not the work you do, but being love. Whatever you do, you can be love. Whatever it is, wherever it is. And by being love, you're in all times and places. And the flavor that you bring by letting the love flow changes all of eternity. You, hidden with Christ and God change all of eternity. So please be good flavor and not so bad. But no matter what you do, the eternal Christ is in you and everywhere.